0: Hello and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. This is Elle Rochford, amateur baker,
1: professional sociologist. And I'm Riley Kincaid. I'm guest hosting this week. I'm a big fan of the pod, so I'm happy to be here. I'm a PhD student at Purdue University. I study gender and family, and I've known Elle for a few years. Really excited to, to be a part of the show.
0: Thanks so much. Uh, Andrew's unavailable this week. And so I thought this would be a great time to invite a longtime listener and longtime friend, Riley Kincaid. And you actually recommended the person we interviewed today. Uh, exactly. So I'm really excited to have you guest host on this episode,
1: especially. I'm super excited. I, I thought it'd be kind of a long shot to just sort of um, send you a name of someone who I thought had really interesting research and might be interested in um, joining the, the podcast, but it turns out that she was actually able to come and um, that's super exciting for me. I can't wait to hear the episode, so thanks. Thank you for this recommendation.
0: So we're talking to Sarah Kumbelik. She's a PhD candidate in sociology at the University of California, Davis. And we talked to her today about abortion narratives. Um, She's done some really cool work around the way women and people who have had abortions talk about their abortions. And so that was a really cool topic. Um, And it it comes at kind of reproductive rights and reproductive health at a a different angle. And so I thought it was great. Um, If you haven't listened to our episode with Katrina Kimport, I recommend uh, that as kind of a good pairing with this one similar, but very different kind of sides of, of abortion. So yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this interview, but I'm also really excited about my ice cream maker. Oh yes. So this week I made mint Oreo ice cream. I am obsessed with my ice cream maker. I recommend that for Christmas gifts. If you're looking for someone who likes to bake, uh, ice cream
1: makers are an incredible gift. Mm, so is it like a standing a standing apparatus or is it um like describe this machine?
0: Yeah. So I,
1: I want to say it's a KitchenAid
0: product, but it's like this very cute red thing. So it's got a base that just has one switch. It's either on or off, which is very nice. Like it's very simple. And then there is kind of a curved paddle that fits into a metal bowl. And the metal bowl you just keep in your freezer. Whenever you're not using it, you have to, you can't cheat on, on the freezing of the bowl. The bowl needs to be frozen solid. So usually like overnight or 12 hours straight for uh, the bowl, but the bowl slots onto the base and then the little paddle slots into the bowl. And then a little clear, uh, case goes over top the whole thing. So it's a cool little machine. The paddle doesn't rotate. It's actually the bowl that rotates and the paddle stays still and it'll scrape along the sides. I've done probably 15 different flavors of ice cream at this point, Uh, but mint chocolate and mint Oreo is definitely my favorite. So I will post some pictures to our Instagram, which is at proofing and lies on Instagram and to our Twitter, which is at proofing capital L uh, on Twitter. I find the trick is to add the Oreos uh, while it's kind of at the soft serve uh, phase and then uh, freeze it solid for about an hour and then top it with more Oreos. So that way you get kind of all the Oreo goodness, like soaking into the ice cream.
1: Mm, that sounds so good. I love mint Oreo ice cream. Uh, I feel like especially around the holidays, that mintiness is, is very good for, for wintertime. And do you use like a spearmint or like a peppermint? Uh,
0: peppermint. What is it? Uh, extracts. I aspire to use like fresh mint and
1: fresh herbs.
0: I've been thinking about doing like a lemon basil sorbet uh, maybe in the summer. I like, I'm very excited about different ice cream flavors right now. Oh, yes. We have a pumpkin puree and cinnamon that we're thinking about making into like a pumpkin ice cream. And I think that would be like perfect for Thanksgiving or Christmas. So that's, that's on my agenda. Love it. It's hard when you haven't actually gotten to eat the baked (laughs) goods. But I can, I can describe it to you as it was really delicious uh, and super creamy. And I did add green food coloring. So, you know, what flavor it is right away.
1: Okay. Um, (laughs) So, I mean, I can, I actually, I haven't been able to eat your creation, but I really, I wasn't lying when I said I love mint Oreo ice cream. I literally had mint Oreo ice cream last night but it was the kind from a store. So probably wasn't as good, but um, I do appreciate the mint Oreo ice cream 100%. And I put, um, I sometimes put like chocolate sauce on it. And honestly, Greek yogurt, plain Greek yogurt is delightful with like rich ice cream, or especially if you add like a sweet sauce to an ice cream, it has that like tart flavor that just kind of cuts the sweetness and it makes it feel it, it just kind of adds variety of flavor. I feel like honestly, Greek yogurt goes with so many things that you wouldn't think. And the other thing that I would say goes really well with Greek yogurt and ice cream is maple syrup. Not with, I do not recommend it with minty flavors, but if you have like a peanut butter chocolate ice cream and you put a little bit of maple syrup and Greek yogurt with it, so good. What? I feel like that, <laughs> that's so wild to me. You're is that something you'd seen somewhere
0: or you just like one day decided to like put I a dollop just, of
1: I just started realizing that I like a lot of things with Greek yogurt and maple syrup, like fruit and um like toast and like oatmeal, like there's a lot of things that go really well with Greek yogurt and maple syrup. And you just wouldn't know until you tried.
0: I feel like I'm like, I'm so, I'm still processing this. Maybe it's great. I will maybe try it. Salt. But Like that just blows my mind that that is how you eat ice cream. And a
1: little bit of sea salt <laughs> just okay. adds to the whole, it's, it's sort of the concoction has sort of grown throughout the years where it used to just be ice cream. And then I was like, this might be good with, a little bit of maple syrup. And then I was like, you know, now it's too sweet. This might be good with just like a little tart Greek yogurt. And then I was like, and now it just needs just a smidge of sea salt. And now I think I've really perfected it. This is so fat. So listeners, please
0: let us know if you try this <laughs> or if this is a way that you, I, I struggle to believe this is like a common way that people eat ice cream, but I can like, I can, I can see it. Because I do um, smoothies in the morning and I do like a chocolate peanut butter smoothie with Greek yogurt. So like, I understand how all the flavors would go together, but like, this is perhaps the wildest thing that has ever been said on this podcast. And I want to make
1: sure I really honor that. Mm. I'm glad I could come here and, and just blow your mind. <laughs>
0: <laughs> like
1: there's like, like, I, I think I, I
0: get it, but I also like it never in a million years would have occurred to me to try that. Well,
1: now you have something new to try.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to go try that and hopefully you all will stick around and listen to this great interview with Sarah Kambelik. Hello and welcome back to Proofing and Lies. I am flying solo. Uh, Today I'm talking with Sarah Kambelik. She is a PhD candidate at UC Davis. How are you doing today?
2: I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Uh, So I'm really excited to talk about uh, a piece of yours I just read. Uh, she has a piece out in Social Problems on abortion narratives. I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that uh, that work.
2: Sure. So, it always strikes me has always struck me as interesting that there's so few studies in the social sciences that engage the perspectives of people who have abortions. I feel like there's mountains of scholarship about abortion. Including, you know, policy. There have been ethnographies of abortion activists, and there's, you know, some work that has been done about abortion providers. But abortion is a really common life experience, um, and yet there's not much written about it as a as an experience. So I've always been interested in abortion stories, and I knew that I wanted to write something about these um, stories in a more sort of systematic way. Um, and I found this wonderful website um, called My Abortion, My Life. And I encourage your listeners to check it out. That is sort of just an archive and repository of hundreds of abortion stories. And anyone can submit their story can you know write their story about whatever aspect of their abortion that they want to write about, and submit it to the website, and and it's just there, and they're they're all, they're mostly anonymous, although some people do um, include their names, and and you know you can you can search by theme, and I think you can search by keyword, um, or you could just do what I did, which was just start reading all of them, <laughs> and um, so. I I knew I wanted to analyze them in some way. And one of the major themes that I was noticing would come up in these stories, um, although certainly not the only theme, was sort of the ways that people talked about how they decided to have an abortion and sort of the moral and ethical issues they thought about during that decision-making process. So, so I decided I wanted to focus on these uh, moral accounts of abortion decision-making in online storytelling.
0: Thank you. That's a, that's a great kind of primer to what the paper is. And what struck me as really interesting, this is kind of a misinformation podcast. I would, I would describe it that way. And kind of the dominant public discourse is about, you know, bodily autonomy, but what you find in, in your paper, what you discuss is that's not really the, the dominant narrative in these personal stories. Um, So I wondered if you could explain like, what, what narratives did you actually see in these real stories?
2: Uh, That's right. So I found that, um, you know, one of the ways, what I call them frames, that, women talked about their abortion decisions was through sort of a classic pro-choice rhetoric. Um, So we we don't often think about pro-choice rhetoric as moral rhetoric, but it really is. Ideas like privacy, like freedom of choice, and bodily autonomy, those are all moral concepts we we think of privacy as good and a lack of privacy as bad and you know um bodily autonomy is good and the lack of bodily autonomy is bad so when you're talking about something being good or bad you're you're sort of talking about moral concepts and that's really what um the sort of mainstream pro-choice rhetoric has given us in terms of a moral moral framework to work with for the last, you know, 40 years, you know, basically since Roe versus Wade. And, and what I found in, in my analysis was that for some women, these frame, that frame really resonated, but it wasn't the dominant frame that resonated. And I found there were three other frames that sort of emerged as ways to sort of talk about the problem of abortion as a potentially morally controversial action and sort of um, justify one's decision as a good and moral decision. So I was surprised the, the sort of classic um, talking points that sort of dominate the movement were there, but they weren't the the main, they weren't the main event. So one of the frames that I found, um, I called abortion as morally unremarkable. And these were stories that really sort of took, sort of, re- sort of took the, the problem of abortion as, you know, morally contentious and sort of just rejected it outright. So these were people who said, I had an abortion because I wanted an abortion. Or, you know, I wanted an abortion. I got an abortion because I don't want kids. And that's, it's it was as simple as that. Um, so this, this was a very small group in terms of the overall um, stories that I looked at, but I thought it was interesting and, you know, a good reminder that not all uh, people who have abortions experience abortion stigma. Some people think of it as just a normal, normal life decision or normal healthcare decision. I wonder if that's like
0: underrepresented too, because all the stories are kind of self-reported. So if you think it's unremarkable, you you probably would be unlikely to then submit your narrative, right? So is it yeah. possible that I those think- are more common. I think
2: that's a really good point. You know, these are people who self-select to write, you know, to take the time to write a narrative and and publish it. And um, they may have more dramatic things to say about their abortions than, than the women who just found it remarkable and moved on with, with their life, which is, I think, pretty common. So just like setting that group aside for a second The more dominant themes were one that I'm calling abortion as morally problematic, but justified. So these were people who sort of stated that in their opinion, abortion is generally wrong, um, or generally immoral. But in their specific case, it was justified. So, you know, sort of Sort of people who talk about abortion as generally problematic, but excusable or justifiable in certain situations. So maybe it's justifiable because they are already raising children and they can't afford another child. You know, so so someone would say, "I I would love to have another baby, but you know, I couldn't afford it." Or someone who said. You know, I was very using very careful contraception, but the condom broke and it's not my fault. I was being responsible. And so what, you know, my abortion is justified. That was a pretty common group. And then the last group, which was also pretty common, were people who talked about their abortions as morally desirable. So rather than just you know, something that's sort of generally wrong, but justifiable in certain cases, they talked about their abortions as morally right, as the right thing to do, as, you know, they looked at their options, and they they decided to go ahead and do the right thing, which was to have an abortion. Um, And this was probably the most surprising group to me, because this is not something that we currently have a culture of talking about abortionists as a moral good, as something that's morally desirable.
0: Yeah, that's a really fascinating group. So what what kind of reasons did they have for it being a social good? Was it like interpersonal or was it like larger narratives about like the, you know, global politics?
2: It was pretty personal. So um, in some cases, they sort of really saw their abortion decision as a parenting decision. And and it was about, you know, it would be wrong to give birth to a child that would suffer in some way. Um, So really, you know, sort sort of taking on this like temporary motherhood identity and talking about how, you know, it would be selfish of them to, you know, to continue the pregnancy and that, you know, in this case, the right thing to do was to let what they consider to be their baby go. I actually have a couple examples, if that would be helpful. I I pulled a few quotes. Yeah, absolutely. So this first one is, this is just an excerpt from the story. She says, I do have my regrets at times, but I look at it as right now, my baby would be suffering because of me no child should suffer. When I'm ready to have kids, I know that I will have made the right decision when I look back. My child will always know that I loved it from the first heartbeat, but I made a better choice by not putting it through the struggle I had to go through. Um, So she's really, you know, conceptualizing her fetus as a baby and a child. And she even uses, you know, the imagery of the heartbeat. But at the same time, she's sort of accounting for her decision as in the best interests of her baby.
0: That's really fascinating, because it really does counter the language that that we've used, you know, since the 90s about abortion. And I've actually I've noticed that there's been kind of a shift from a lot of these abortion advocacy groups talking about fetuses back to like shifting back to using the word baby. And so I don't know if you've noticed that in your work as well, but, um, I, I found that to be interesting that it does seem like we're, we're kind of going back and forth with terminology.
2: Yeah. I mean, I still think it sort of depends. I've noticed that some of the more, I guess, like mainstream and using air quotes, like abortion rights advocacy groups, um, are still pretty quiet on the fetus. And that, you know, there are other, other groups, um, particularly groups that are centering women's stories around abortion that are sort of being a little bit more like flexible with um, language around the, calling it the fetus or calling it the baby or, or a, a life or a potential life and sort of putting that on the, the pregnant person to decide like what to call the fetus. When we're talking about abortion rights, the fetus is something that can be really uncomfortable to talk about. But I do think it's something that some women who have abortions, you know, not all, but some really seriously consider. Um, And some of them continue to go on with, with having abortions and, and feel satisfied with that decision.
0: I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about your data source. So you, you write in the paper a little bit about how you found this one or why, why you chose this specific site. And I wonder if you could, uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about the site and maybe like abortion narratives in general.
2: Yeah. So I, I was, I wanted a site that sort of, left a lot of room for sort of complexity and nuance in abortion narratives some of the other um, some of the articles I had read previously were sort of comparing abortion narratives on sort of uh, websites that clearly had um, either a pro-abortion rights or an anti-abortion rights political agenda. And that's really fascinating research, but I was looking for something that was just a little bit more open-ended. And um, that was what sort of turned me on to this website. Um, and that's not to say, I mean, this—the the website is run by a pro-choice organization. It's not completely neutral. But, you know, part of their mission is sort of to expand um, the scope of sort of what is an acceptable abortion narrative um, and sort of, you know, not uh, be a little bit more flexible in terms of going into like a gray area in terms of abortion. And I think that that is reflective of how a lot of people A lot of people think about abortion. A lot of people think about it as a gray area, including people who are very supportive of, you know, the legal right to have abortion and very supportive of abortion access they still you know might just look at the at the issue as a little bit more complex or nuanced and so that's what i was looking for
0: yeah i find these narratives really fascinating cuz i think there's been a shift to storytelling as a way to educate about this issue so instead of having it be a religious debate or um a scientific debate it's become much more not Maybe not completely focused on actual storytelling, but I think storytelling has become a larger toolkit. I don't know if tool is the right word, but storytelling has become, I think, an increasingly important part of talking about abortion. I wonder, do you think social media plays a a role in this or do you think this kind of push towards narratives has to do with social media or some kind of political factor going on? Because it seems like abortion narratives have become increasingly common.
2: Yeah, I I mean, that's a good question. I don't know exactly why. I think, I think social media definitely plays a larger role in that, you know, we've sort of have this whole confessional culture around social media now and people are much more comfortable sharing at least you know a version of themselves um online with the public than than they were i mean it's even like a few years ago and i know there has been some work around the hashtag um shout your abortion encouraging people to talk about their abortion stories on twitter and so I think some of it follows sort of like the natural path of digital culture. And then there have also been some really, you know, purposive individuals and organizations that really like see this as, as a tool, see this as a, as a very important tool in the advocacy toolkit. And I can't, I'm not um, affiliated with any of those groups. I'm just a fan Um, But I think I think um, people are working hard to 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 sort of leverage the power of of storytelling in abortion advocacy.
0: Well, I think it's interesting. I think it's there's a lot of campaigns around destigmatizing abortion. And so I think there is kind of a maybe a pressure to make it part of a positive narrative. And so I think this specific site that you get your data is really fascinating because it is open to more negative experiences, but still focusing on like scientifically accurate narratives.
2: Yeah, right. So I think there are some limits to what the site would publish in terms of just, you know, blanket freedom of speech. And I think scientific inaccuracies would be one of those areas that I, I doubt they would publish um, a narrative that had, you know, that that were just inaccurate um, medically or psychologically or otherwise.
0: Yeah, I always, I, I find it very interesting. I grew up in a, a Catholic community and went to Catholic school. And the dominant narrative about abortion was that it will drive you slowly insane. And we had to watch actually a horror movie about a woman who's like driven mad by abortion. So it, w- it was very bizarre. So it is really refreshing to see a huge diversity of narratives from, you know, you know, it didn't phase me at all to it was really important to me and my family. Uh, so thank you for your work. This is, you know, great work. It's a great paper. I encourage my listeners to, to look you up.
2: Oh, no problem. I could talk about this stuff all day, every day. One thing, actually, that um, you just mentioned about sort of growing up Catholic is um, there's also an interesting theme of religion and specifically Christianity that came up in my analysis, and it was quite unexpected. I think we, when we think about abortion and Christianity, I think we think of them as very much in conflict um, and that, you know, if somebody is, you know, bringing religion into their ethical decision making about abortion, then it is either convincing them not to have the abortion or it's making them feel some kind of guilt or shame. Um, and there was this really interesting group that talked about religion as something that was really helpful in terms of clarifying their decision to to have the abortion and also present their abortion as a moral good so sort of people who talked about you know i i i prayed about my abortion you know i decided to send my baby to be with god and I think that's a better place for them. And therefore, I'm at peace with my decision. And like, there was a lot of like, theological sort of imagery that came up and things that came up in a way that that I found to be really surprising. And I mean, the title of my paper is my baby went straight to heaven. So that's somebody who, you know, was talking about you know, she, she was Catholic and she had to make up an elaborate miscarriage story to her friends because she didn't want them to judge them, but she didn't have any regrets. She felt her, like her baby went to heaven and she knows that God sees her and, and loves her. And so I think it, it's really important to sort of make room for some of these more complex or unexpected narratives or or narratives that have like a little bit more nuance to them and really like listen to these stories as a way to sort of learn about how real people are grappling with these moral and ethical issues in in real time.
0: That's fascinating. Yeah. And I I guess there is a long history of religious religious people assisting in abortions there's a whole network of of religious leaders before roe v wade so it's Mm -hmm. not i guess i guess it shouldn't be as surprising to me that that religion still plays a role in these narratives but it is always really interesting because the the public discourse is so that christianity and and abortion are are just absolutely antithetical so it's interesting to see these connections so you had mentioned off off uh podcast you had mentioned that you're working on another project related to abortion narratives and I wondered if you wanted to talk uh at all about that project
2: sure so um right now I'm working on a paper that um continues sort of my exploration of abortion and morality but um I'm using a different perspective um and I'm analyzing interviews that were conducted with women after they received abortions because their fetus was found to have a severe fetal anomaly. Um, So in in most cases, these were planned pregnancies. Uh, In all of the interviews, they were wanted pregnancies. And so I'm looking at how people with this particular type of abortion experience thinks about the morality of their, uh, the morality of abortion more generally, and also the morality and sort of ethical implications of their own experiences. And one of the things that I'm really interested in is whether people who have abortions in this pretty rare scenario of of a severe fetal health issue, how do they they see themselves in terms of, in in the context of sort of a larger group of people who have abortions for quote unquote elective reasons. And, you know, do they, does this experience make them feel more of a sort of identification with that larger group? Or do they feel like a completely separate group from, from the, you know, the other, types of people who would have an abortion. Um, do they think of themselves as morally superior? Or, you know, d- how does this sort of like change, change or not their worldview on abortion in general? So that's one of the things that I'm really interested in in looking at and right in the middle of my analysis. So I don't have much to report yet, um, but I have noticed just reading through the transcripts, there is there is a lot of really interesting things going on with language where in the interviews, participants are much more comfortable using the language of termination than abortion. Many of them didn't use the word abortion or commented that they didn't like the word abortion because it had, you know, it sounded too political for them or, you know, so, so a lot of just sort of medicalized language around termination, induction, um, and also like a sort of palliative care type type language, like really thinking about re- really relating more to parents who, who need to make end of life care decisions for small babies than than sort of an affinity with other people who have abortions.
0: I um can only think of kind of cultural examples of, of like media examples. I think Gray's Anatomy has dealt with with this topic before. Because I've always heard it kind of discussed separately, you know, the as termination and not as abortion. So it's really interesting to see that reflected, even though it's similar procedures or sometimes the same procedure. So I'm I'm looking forward to that paper. That sounds really fascinating.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think medically, a later abortion, whether it's for, you know, for a fetal health indication or for some other reason, are medically, from what I understand, very similar, if not exact. And so um, it's just, it's very interesting how, you know, entire, infrastructure of vocabulary has been created around these medically practically identical things
0: I wonder in your in your first paper maybe this is outside the scope but did it matter in the narratives if it was like earlier medication versus a later or procedural I don't know if that comes up in the narratives at all
2: no I mean it certainly did come up in terms of like people describing their experiences, but I didn't notice it so much in terms of like affecting sort of which like moral framework the person used. That's interesting. I,
0: I guess that's interesting to me as as a researcher. Wow, that yeah any uh any other fun pro well fun is a strong word. Any other interesting <laughs>
2: projects you have going on? Um that's pretty much it for now just plugging away trying to finish my dissertation oh
0: good luck I'm uh, I'm in a similar place so I can appreciate that
2: thank you yeah I mean I wonder you have such a you know your area of expertise is much more around like advocacy I feel like uh, or social movements right um, yeah yeah it's interesting to me that you mention, you know the a uh, uh, sort of abortion narratives as sort of becoming popular and maybe that maybe that's maybe I'm just kind of out of the loop because I don't I'm not like really enmeshed in that world but it was actually surprising for me to hear that to hear you say that it's something that that you feel is maybe like gone a little bit more mainstream
0: yeah so there's been a big push particularly by um advocacy groups run by women of color To tell abortion stories, there's been like a lot of like hashtag, like share your story, hashtag abortion, hashtag, like all kinds of different ways to like collect these stories and big campaigns to go out and collect stories. I want to say, I can't remember the exact org, but one org did a campaign with artists where they hired artists to write, you know, novels and poems and produce artwork around abortion to really change the culture and narrative um so i think i don't know if it's popular in the more mainstream of the movement but at least like women of color led orgs are really pushing the idea that we need to talk we need to work on culture uh culture and stigma and so there's been some interesting work um, being produced by these advocacy groups, or being supported by these groups. And I think it's something growing up, at least in the 90s and early 2000s, I don't think we really had the same kind of collection of stories the way that
2: we do now. Yeah, yeah, I I think that completely makes sense. And it's really in line with sort of the different um, types of reproductive rights and reproductive justice organizations, you know, the ones that tend to be more grassroots and more social justice oriented and led by women of color tend to also be more open to sort of the nuance and complexity of the abortion experience. Yeah. Um, And I I feel their goal is not necessarily to set like a uniform message or a story about abortion that resonates most generally, but to actually Sort of complicate the story and show the humanity of of every person who has abortions.
0: Yeah, well, and I think it's also an effort to correct the the public imagination of who's getting abortions, because so much of the the narrative is about young white teens, right. and that's just not who's who's getting abortions, right? It's pre- predominantly people who already have children and. Uh, you know, it's a lot of like economic hardship. So I think part of the narrative is just to point out that there's no one type of person getting abortion. But even if there was one type, it wouldn't be the type that we're imagining.
2: Right. Totally. Yeah.
0: But I think that that distinction of talking about abortion versus termination is is really interesting uh, because I think that, I don't know, that that's just such a significant shift in language. That's really fascinating to me.
2: I'd love to come back and talk about it when I have more to say.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, we will be keeping our eyes out for that paper.
2: Where can people find, uh, find your work? That's a good question. You can find my recent article in social problems journal. Um, I believe it's the August 2021 issue, and you can find me on Twitter at, at my name, Sarah Kumbelik and You can also find me on the UC Davis Sociology Department webpage.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much.